0: Hi there. You're listening to the Grok Science Show. I'm Itai Erez and I'm Anjun Lee. Uh, just as a fundamental reminder, all weeks the Grok Science Show—it's a great science show. We're gonna come at you with science news of what's been happening in the last couple of weeks. Uh, the term Grox is from the 1961 novel *Stranger in a Strange Land*. Basically, is just a verb that they made up in that book, which is supposed to mean uh, encompassing all knowledge about something, truly comprehending it on a deep and fundamental level. Uh, and so that's what we hope to do here on the Grok Science Show. But anyway. <laughs> We've got a really special episode for you today. Right now, we're sitting here on the uh, University of Chicago's Hyde Park campus. It's Wednesday, September twenty-first, and tomorrow there's it's a very the special event day. happening. Yes, the what, what is it? The big day of Andre. Well,
1: it's a very, very important award that gets awarded you know, to you know some of the oh, greatest scientists. It, oh, the out Nobel there. Prizes. No, well, yes, but no, uh, it's the Ig Nobel Prizes. Um, so, and they're awarded to scientists who, as they say, each has done something that makes people laugh and then think. So, yeah, if you're not familiar with the Ig Nobel Prizes, it's, it's sort of like a, uh, you know, satirical kind of, you know, off-color sort of, for, sort of award that they give out to scientists that do, you know, often humorous or otherwise, you know, interesting work. So the award ceremony is tomorrow. Uh, this is happening in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts at mm-hmm. the Sanders Theater. At Harvard, nice. Uh, you know, and the actual ceremony, uh, you know, isn't just simply just giving out awards and then that's it, right? There's a, a, a there's a lot of other things that they do as part of the ceremony. There's like, you know, an opera.
0: There's an opera. There is an opera, okay.
1: and often stars a uh, former, actual Nobel Prize laureates, not that's Ig Nobel,
0: Nobel. Actual Prize. Nobel Prize yeah, laureates. Yeah, right, right. I'm surprised they'd be willing to show their faces there.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, they also have these like 24 uh, seven lectures, right? which, you know, aren't actually 24-7 lectures. They're not, you know, Wait, so boring why they, lectures why that they go they on forever. They're, uh, you have 24 oh. seconds to explain what it is that you're talking about and then seven seconds to summarize what it is that you talked about. And it's very, very fast. And if you go over time, a little girl comes out and, you know, tap, 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 excuse me, you're boring me,
0: <laughs> get off the stage. <laughs> wow, I wish more lectures at our university were in that yeah, format. Yeah, right, exactly. That'd and so, great.
1: yeah, these often star uh, Nobel laureates as well. 24 7 nice. lectures, and you know, uh, it, it's it's a fun time, it's a silly time. There are lots of things that happen, you know, the paper airplanes get flown around. and
0: Yeah, it sounds entertaining. If you're anywhere near Cambridge,
1: I'd suggest going and giving it a look. Yeah, tickets are 75, 65, 55, and 35. Student tickets, $5.35. Do-
0: yeah, oh, it's $5 off. student take $30 tickets for students. Yeah, I know. It's madness.
1: And if if you're too poor to afford that, or, you know, just don't live in Massachusetts, uh, you can catch the uh, webcast, but we'll talk about that later.
0: All right, so without further ado, uh, now for some of the Ig Nobel highlights from the past, what, 20, 25 years? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So the first Ig Nobels came out in 1991. Um, For example, uh, in chemistry, this one went to uh, Jacques Benaviste for publishing, I believe, in Science uh, on homeopathy. And if you're not familiar with homeopathy, it's basically, you know, this idea that water has memory of whatever substances were in it. Mm. And so they sort of, like, oh, this was in nature, excuse me. And so they sort of, like, dilute the, you know, whatever's in the water at, until the point of which you can't actually chemically detect it anymore, or even the probability of a molecule left in the water is basically zero. Yeah. Um, and then they, you know, it seems to have, he, he claimed it had this sort of, like, a water memory property. Of whatever liquid you know. it had
0: been mixed with beforehand. Right. So
1: he would do, like, immu- immunological studies based on that. Huh. And then went off the deep end
0: but so wait why did he get an Ig Nobel for this because it's just preposterous it's preposterous he
1: gave it for like fraud and you know issues yeah. about reproducibility and stuff like that and so nice anyway so that that's uh, that's how it all began
0: <laughs> my favorite from 91 was in biology mm-hmm. it was given to this guy Robert Clark Graham who developed the repository for germinal choice oh a sperm bank that only accepts donations from Nobel Prize winners and Olympians. <laughs> Uh, Graham was a businessman who had made his fortune by inventing (laughs) shatterproof eyeglasses. And this uh, repository for germinal choice, this Nobel Prize winner sperm bank, ran from 1980 to 1999, which is actually two years after he died. The original idea was basically to monitor the outcomes of the children that are produced through this bank's sperm to see, you know, do Nobel Prize winners and Olympians, does does their sperm, their germ cell line content give rise to exceptional human beings in terms of intelligence or physical prowess. You know who would be really interested in that? Who's that? Hitler? Adolf Hitler. Yes, yeah. Hitler, yes <laughs> it is. So it's funny you mention that because obviously when he first announced this, uh, there was a lot of press hubbub about it. People were very, there was a lot of controversy. Some people accused him of being you know, a eugenicist, and others said he was trying to bring back Nazism, right? Mm. So that was definitely a, a concern when people brought it up. Uh, even though the, there was so much news attention to it, or maybe perhaps because there was so much news attention to it. <laughs> Uh, only one Nobel Prize winner ended up having their sperm stocked there. Uh, All the other ones that said they were interested at first quickly dropped out after all the controversy Yeah, that uh, also, like, you know, just
1: thinking about a Nobel Prize winner jerking it in, like, some cold
0: white room. It's It's a very sad thought. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's for science. Ah,
0: ah. (sighs) Yeah, actually, he had three Nobel Prize winners sign up, and then once (laughs) the press blew it all up, two of them were like, no, that's okay. We're (laughs) out. Um, So, obviously, he had to loosen the stringency, what the criteria for donation were after that. But they still were looking for very intelligent people. Donors were frequently recruited on college campuses. Hmm. Uh, I saw one article that was discussing the fact that, interestingly, all the donors were white, which definitely was not helping his I'm not a racist (laughs) neo-Nazi case. Yeah, yeah. He said it, at a 1980 news conference relating to the, to the repository, he said, we aren't thinking of a super race. We are thinking in terms of a few more creative, intelligent people who otherwise might not be born. Hmm. Uh, other interesting information about this sperm bank, it was relatively cheap for people to use. Women who applied had to pay a $50 application fee and $10 a month for storage and shipping costs, which <laughs> you know, if, if you're anyone who's interacted with a sperm bank these days, you know that that's, that's really quite cheap, actually, oh, for yeah. many mm-hmm. of these things. Uh, and the mothers obtaining the sperm did not have to be intelligent at all. Oh. There was, there was no kind of genetic screening for them even. Wow. Uh, the only criteria was that they had to be like married and financially relatively well off. I see. Uh, so really if he was really interested in trying to get the smartest and brightest, it should have been (laughs) sperm bank where the donors and the recipients were Nobelians or or Olympians. So he isn't a racist. So he claims. (laughs) So he claims. The bank ended up producing uh, a little over 200 children. None of those yeah. children actually ended up being from Nobel Prize winners anyway. Even the one that he managed to obtain, Graham later realized, was probably too old to be an effective sperm donor. Oh. Uh, a lot of the kids who came of this experiment are still a little too young for anything particularly interesting to have emerged about them. Although some of them that have gone public uh, appear to be pretty smart. They've got like good GPAs, good yeah. test scores, that sort of thing, or they're, they're artistically gifted, et cetera, so on and so forth. The one positive thing, aside from, you know, the lives of the people that now exist that wouldn't exist otherwise, I think, to take from this, mm-hmm. is that it actually revolutionized the sperm bank industry. Huh. Before this, the donor choice was almost exclusively done by the doctors. Oh, wow. And now it actually became something that the mothers, the recipients, had an actual choice on. And so I was reading another article that was talking about, you know, before this, it was just kind of like... If you're having fertility issues and you want to receive a sperm donation, you got to go do it through the doctor, just get it whoever, right? But because of this, the idea that the recipient could even have a say kind of emerged and rose to prominence. Hmm. And now you have this situation where, I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to donate sperm. I have not. But I, the reason I have not is because I am a redhead and I out of hand think sure. that very few people will want it. And that's—it's created this industry now, where it's like this huge industry of trying to get a very specific demographic, specific types of people with specific educational attainments, physical characteristics, so on and so forth, to donate to a sperm bank.
1: Hmm. So I mean, that really does fit the Nobel Ig Nobel thing
0: about each each has done something that makes people laugh and then think. Yeah. In this case, in this case, maybe there was some laughter. Some anger and then some thinking, but right. yeah. But I mean,
1: it actually changed a lot.
0: Right? Yes, I mean, surprisingly. Yeah,
1: I mean, uh, you know, from going over a lot of these Ig Nobel Prizes, it, it does seem that you know that seems to be a, a recurring theme that you know it's it's sort of ahead of its time, you know. Yeah. Like for example, I have this one from uh, '93. You know, this they gave this one out for literature. You know, as an ironic title, it went to uh, Topal Caliph at all. Uh, which included 974 co-authors <laughs> on a paper from the New England Journal of Medicine. This is from '93, right? I mean, that you know, that's a lot of co-authors for '93. I mean, that
0: happens every once in a while today, but yeah. only when it's like a huge collaboration exactly. that truly did require hundreds of different authors. Exactly.
1: And so, you know, at this point, you know, this was just about like different ways to treat heart attacks all around the. You know, it was a longitudinal study all around the U.S. Yeah. And so they all tried different methods of uh, treating heart attacks, and they you know collated all the information. So most of these guys were you know, actual clinicians and yeah. stuff like that. And so, you know, back then in 93, people were like, oh, you know, how can, the, how can they be all listed as co-authors? So, you know, blah, blah, blah. And like you said, you know, nowadays we have collaborations like LIGO that have upwards of 1,000 authors, and, you know, nobody blinks twice about that. Right. You know? We had a paper recently from, uh, about the Higgs boson mass, where they measured it, and had 5,154 authors. Wow. Yeah, the article was nine pages and it had twenty-four pages of authors.
0: Wow! I know, right? It's you know. Was that full author names or was that just initials even? <laughs> full author names. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. But I mean, you know, it's It, That's it, crazy. it is a bit ridiculous, you yeah. know. Like
1: back then in '93, people were like, "Oh, this is this is weird," and then now it's just kind of the norm, right?
0: Yeah, I've got a good one here from '92. I hopefully people don't. Take to heart that both the first stories that I talk about have a similar subject matter. I'm not obsessed with this. I just think it's the most interesting <laughs> of these prizes from these two years. So in 92, they gave out the Ig Nobel for biology to Cecil Jacobson, who was an American former fertility doctor who, as it ended up, was using his own sperm to impregnate his patients without informing them. Hmm. Uh, the the quotation <laughs> that the That ig- seems hard to do. <laughs> it, well, just you wait. There's a lot that there's a lot about this story that seems quite difficult today, but I guess back then worked. Uh, hmm. The, the description that the Ig Nobel Committee gave, where they were giving him the prize for his relentless, being a relentlessly generous sperm donor and a prolific patriarch of sperm banking for devising <laughs> a simple, single-handed method of quality control. Wow. So in the end, it's suspected that he fathered as many as 75 children by impregnating patients without them knowing. They thought that it was artificial insemination through an anonymous donor system. Hmm. That's what he claimed to them. And that's actually also what he claimed later when he got sued in court. But we'll get to that. <laughs> It's so, synonymous
1: to the ladies. Come on. Yeah, so, yeah, they have no
0: idea. He knows what's going on. I, I just, so I, once I heard about this, I started looking more into this guy because I was like, oh, yeah. what kind of a person would do this? So, so what I was going to say is it's pretty clear from early on that he's pretty insane. Hmm. In the 1960s, he claimed that he impregnated a male baboon by planting a fertilized egg from a female baboon into the male baboon's abdominal cavity. Oh. Then wow. he claimed that he terminated the pregnancy after four months. Wow. But he didn't publish anything of this. No, no, nothing, no scientific evidence, nothing of the sort. Hmm. In the 80s, he also ran a reproductive genetics center in Virginia, where he gave women that were having difficulty getting pregnant a hormone, HCG, human chorionic gonadotropin, but HCG. Hmm. Uh, That hormone made women appear to be getting pregnant via tests and via bodily changes that they experienced. He would show them ultrasounds, even, of their fetuses. But inevitably, around the third month or so, he would report that the fetus had died. Randomly, um, basically. Later, when this came to a criminal trial, uh, it revealed that the fetuses in the ultrasounds that were being observed were actually either nearby organs or fecal matter. <laughs> so, try to tell your baby apart from fecal matter in an ultrasound. Good luck, apparently.
1: Sure, that's a baby that looks like a spleen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> also, the positive pregnancy tests that the results that they were getting that were positives. Uh, relied on the presence of the hormone that he was injecting them with. Oh, sure. So right. it's kind of That's a cyclical – they were false positives. The, the hormone also caused the bodily changes that led the women to believe sure, they were pregnant. Right, 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 so it's all right. kind of very self-cyclical and, and self-circular, yeah. right? Uh, at his criminal defense, he denied everything, claiming that he really believed the women had been pregnant, that he thought the HCG injections were a low enough dose to not induce a false positive on the pregnancy test that he misread the ultrasounds in error, and that he really did have an anonymous sperm donor system that probably just got mixed up. <laughs> he, he, I mean, ignore the fact even that he never produced any uh, physical documents right. encoding such a system. He also made the claim during the course of this trial that, yes, OK, sometimes he did use his own sperm in that anonymous donor system, but only on occasions where the donors failed to show up and the window of opportunity for the woman getting pregnant uh, was closing. Hmm. So, yeah, in 92, he was convicted on 52 counts of mail fraud, wire fraud, and perjury. Wow. Sentenced to five years in prison and had his medical license revoked. <laughs> so, Jeez. pretty crazy story. <laughs> <laughs> this one's a little topical. This one's from
1: uh, 98 on statistics. This one's, uh, this one's, you know, sort of related. Maybe, maybe not. Okay. There's, there's a, a statistician wanted to figure out if there's anything about, you know, this, this myth about whether these body part sizes correlate with penis size. Mm. Yeah. Well, it turns out, you know, they, they, they checked a lot of things. They checked height. They
0: checked hand size, foot size, uh, a lot of other stuff. Oh, when you say penis length, what yeah. are we, are we talking erect, flaccid? How you know, would, they, they didn't
1: really talk about that. They didn't get into and methodology. And also self-measured. So, okay, okay. You know,
0: lots of variance, then. Lots
1: of variance, yeah. But, but it turns out two things, you know, w- actually came out significantly correlated with penis length. Okay. It turns out to be height and foot size. Foot size. Yeah. Interesting. The correlation itself is very, very weak. Uh, penis length to height, 0.26 is the correlation coefficient. Okay. Pretty small. Pretty yeah. small. But P less than 0.05. Significant. It is. Small, si- but significant. Significant, yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> what they call me. And uh, foot size, you know, 0.27, p less than 0.03. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. Slightly less small, slightly more significant. Right, yeah. it <laughs> doesn't bode well. I have small feet.
1: <laughs> it is a, a average sight, though. So. I, w- I would give myself that, yes.
0: Yeah. Um, I got another interesting one here from 93, the Ig Nobel for physics was given to Corentin Louis-Kevron of France for his conclusion that the calcium in chicken eggshells is being created by a process of cold fusion. (laughs) (laughs) This is another guy that if you look back in his history, was clearly crazy real early on. But uh, in in the 60s, he claimed to have conducted experiments and studies demonstrating violations of the law of conservation of mass Hmm. by biological systems. Just to recap, in case you don't remember what the law of conservation of mass is, It's a law that the mass of a system, a closed system that doesn't have any inputs, a transfer of energy or matter from inside or anything or outside, that the mass of a closed system has to stay constant over time. Uh, Commonly also known as matter can't be created or destroyed, only rearranged. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this guy claimed that the precipitation of eggshells is a transmutation of potassium into calcium by nuclear fusion. Wow. This is a process that requires high speeds, temperatures, and pressures that are unattainable in any known biological systems. Wow. So who needs like you know a nuclear reactor when you have chickens? If you've got chickens. Just throw the chickens over there. Right. Yeah. Even it's just such a preposterous idea. It's something that <laughs> is still to this day is not even possible with our mechanical devices. No way is it possible in a biological system. Uh, yeah. His response to criticisms like that uh-huh. was just a physical laws don't apply to biological reactions, <laughs> which is just insane to say. All right. I just def- I don't know. In fairness, he was born in 1901, so like he maybe saw a lot of crazy things in his life. Yeah. And or had a, a lot of crazy drugs. Yeah, or... probably both, realistically. <laughs> uh, he got an engineering degree in 1925 and was part of the French resistance in World War II. So maybe he was wow. used to being trampled over. I don't, yeah, I don't know. All right. Kind of insane. All right,
1: well, I, I got one last one from the 90s. Uh, this one's from 94 for medicine. Um, so this one's a bit of a long one. This, it was to uh, Richard Dart of the Rocky Mountain Poison Center and uh, Richard Gustafson. At the University of Arizona for publishing this paper, where uh, it was a case study about a, a 28-year-old man. Um, he had a pet rattlesnake, got bit on the lip, and Ooh. so he read in a uh, magazine article somewhere that, like, well, uh, apparently they thought that you could zap yourself with electricity, like ridiculous amounts of electricity, to like kill the venom.
0: You shock yourself, and that is anti-venom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Why would they and think so that?
1: It, it wasn't just him. He read it in the magazine and he like talked to his neighbor and like you know they had a plan and they were like, oh, all right. Whoa, well, if, he
0: gets he gets bit by his pet rattlesnake on his lip and he yeah. has time to go back and reference the magazine, talk to his neighbor.
1: Well, well, this was a prearranged thing. I so see. He, they were yeah. like,
0: if the rattlesnake bites me, yeah, we're gonna shock me. Yeah, yeah. So okay. he he gets bit. He like goes over to his neighbor and
1: knocks on his door. He's like, hey man, it happened. Bro. It happened. It let's, it, do <laughs> let's, let's, let's
0: do it. the plan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> let's go to plan A. All right. So the uh, the neighbor. Like, disassembled his car engine and pulled out some spark plugs um, <laughs> and then hooked the spark plugs up to his lip and then ran his car uh, and revved it for oh five whole minutes while this guy is like shocking and like getting shocked and convulsing. Are you and, like, kidding me? And there was like, you know, probably smoke coming out from his lips because like, you know, his, his his whole face got charred up. Five whole minutes. God. And then they're like, hey, it's not working. Let's call the ambulance.
0: <laughs> then they decided to call the ambulance? Yeah. Oh my god.
1: Uh yeah, and then a um, an ambulance arrived eventually. Uh, 15 minutes later, and they found uh quote the patient unconscious and incontinent of stool. <laughs> the important things. Yeah, and then, so the ambulance was like, listen, we can't do anything about for, about this guy. It's gonna take too long to get somewhere. So they called in a chopper, pulled it, you know, got you know, put him in a chopper, and then eventually, uh, they got. You know they got his venom levels down in his blood by giving him twenty-seven
0: vials of anti-venom. Wow! How much is uh, it supposed we'll to see. take on a normal person who immediately deals with the issue properly instead of shocking themselves? So just just, just one, a I handful, probably. Yeah, yeah probably not and twenty-seven. So, uh,
1: and then he was saved, and so the paper was about you know the uh, ineffectiveness of electricity versus venom. God, that's so ridiculous. That's an <laughs>
0: award that seems to me that that group maybe should be more on honorable mentions for Darwin Awards. Yeah. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. That's so dumb. Wow. <laughs> He lived, though, so I, you oh, know. Oh, great. Yeah, that's why, guess, that's why honorable mention. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. so, you
0: know. <laughs> <sighs> 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 uh, that's so dumb. Um, I've got another interesting one here from 2001. All right, uh, moving into the millennium. The Ig Nobel in physics was given to David Schmidt for partially explaining the shower curtain effect. Oh, you yeah. Ever, you ever notice when you take, oh, like yeah, a yeah, shower, yeah. The, the shower, the shower curtain, curtain starts to billow inwards? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's kind of annoying. Um, but it doesn't do that when you're not in the shower or when the shower's not being taken. Basically, he spent, he spent $28,000 and a PhD in engineering figuring out that a shower's water droplets decelerate under the influence of aerodynamic drag, transferring energy to the bathtub air, which then twists like a mini-hurricane turned on its side. Mm. And the pressure in the center of that mini-hurricane is lower than all the other points in the bathtub, so it pulls in on the curtain. Mm. And then you're like, leave me alone, curtain, I'm trying to shower. But then the mini-hurricane is like, too bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, in case you were curious,
1: huh? Yeah, that's weird. All right, so this one's from 2000. Uh, this is this this is actually a really cool one, uh, sort of. <laughs> this is for uh, Andre Geim from the University of the Netherlands and uh, Sir Michael Berry of Bristol University. They used uh, superconducting magnets to levi- levitate a frog. Ooh, that's cool. Yeah. Wait, so, how were they
0: levitating it with the iron in its blood or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so sick.
1: so. Actually, this guy is really cool because Andre Geim won the Nobel Prize in 2010. Oh, so he's he's a he's double a, winner. Yeah, he's, he's a, a Nobel double. Yeah, yeah, Nobel. yeah. So he got that for graphene.
0: So in physics. So he did something legitimate after <laughs> he levitating a frog. Yeah. Well, I think he did something legitimate before he levitated the frog. Yeah, I imagine you have to to get the funds to be able to afford the magnets to levitate a frog. Sure, that too. Yeah, but you know. Anyway. <laughs> that's a that's a pretty good <laughs> one. That's pretty solid. And
1: you know, 2000 was a pretty good year. This this one's uh, from 2000 psychology. Uh, for you know, this is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Mm. So it's the uh, uh you know, It's it's the effect where your ignorance makes it difficult for you to know how ignorant you are, and uh, so you yes. sort of like overestimate how how much you know, how much you know, right? The it's, more ignorant
0: you are, the less aware you are of your ignorance. Exactly, and yes. so uh,
1: you know, as as we move into the more further into the age of the internet, you know, this becomes ever more e- evident. Oh, I think it's worry. evident from this
0: election cycle. Yeah,
1: the election cycle, you know, yeah. So the original paper was called Unskilled and Unaware of It, How Difficulties in Recognizing One's Own Incompetence Lead to Inflated Self-Assessments.
0: Wow, Yeah. that's a dangerous combination. It is, it is. So 2000 was a good year for I, the Ig Nobel's. i got another one here from uh, 2003 in Literature to John Trinkaus For collecting data and publishing more than 80 detailed academic reports about things that he found annoying, (laughs) such as what percentage of young people wear baseball caps forwards versus backwards? Hmm. What percentage of pedestrians wear white sports shoes rather than any other color? What percentage of swimmers swim laps in the shallow end of a pool? What percentage of drivers almost but not completely come to a stop at a particular stop (laughs) sign? What percentage of shoppers exceed the number of items permitted in a groceries express lane? Not not by how many, but what Just number? what perc- just oh. just just what percentage of them exceed the number that's allowed? Not by how many. I would like
1: to see that one guy who tries to bring
0: in like 100 items and I'm sure there's some. <laughs> I feel like you have to you have to be close to the border to get away with it. Right, though, right? yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, this was two thousand three, right? I don't know mm-hmm. how widespread the uh, like automated checkout stations were. Sure. Right. Now, you know, yeah. if you want to do the express checkout, automated, you don't you don't even have to have any shame, right? Right. But right. back then, it's like you have to look someone in the face and be like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, I can be in the express lane," right? No, that that's two items, right there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh he also did reports about the percentage of students who dislike the taste of Brussels sprouts, yeah, yeah. the average wait time to see a doctor at a particular office, <laughs> uh, the percentage, and the percentage of people who pay for the candles in churches. Hmm. Is that that's the thing? I'm I, not familiar with this. Yeah, I didn't even know churches—they just give out candles to parishioners. Is that? I don't. I don't know. Anyway, uh, and another interesting note that kind of sucks is that some of his studies he conducted repeatedly over different years. And his general conclusion from all this was that bad habits are getting more widespread over time. Oh, man. Bad habits is defined by him, <laughs> of course. So humanity really is going down the tube, huh? Yeah, according to, yeah, according to this guy. <laughs> according to John Trinkhouse. Oh, my. Hmm. All right, so uh,
1: so here's, here's a 2004 one from psychologists for uh, Daniel Simons of UIUC. And uh, Christopher Chabris of Harvard, this was uh, for for their experiment demonstrating that, you know, it's very easy to overlook a woman in a gorilla suit in the middle of a party. Hmm. <laughs> they ran so, that experiment? Yeah, so what they did was they had a video of, like, people at a party, and they had, like, you know, they put a woman in a gorilla suit, and she was just walking around in the party, just, you know, whatever. Yeah. Right? And then so in the... In the experiment, they asked uh, the people being tested to actually you know, look for specific features that weren't the woman in the gorilla suit. And then at the end of the video, you know, the, they watched the video. They asked them these questions about what they saw. And they're like, did you notice the woman in the gorilla suit? And nobody, nobody saw the woman in the gorilla suit. Nobody? Nobody. This must have been one hell of a party. <laughs> <laughs> what, what were they
0: all on?
1: No, it was just like, you know, it was a video of, like, an office party, you know, like, very, very mild. Oh, they're just saying like, they had them
0: watch the video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they yeah. didn't notice the woman in the gorilla suit yeah, in Yeah,
1: did not notice the woman in the gorilla suit. So it's very easy to miss details and things, and like, um, unless you're really specifically looking for them. Yeah, I mean,
0: I've heard repeatedly about different scientific investigations into the actual quality of eyewitness reports. Right, exactly. The general conclusion is that eyewitness reports are, are quite are bad. Are awful. Right? Yes. They're well, this really, is why. It's, it's <laughs> kind of funny, since our whole justice system kind of hinges upon other people witnessing events, right? Yeah, exactly. That's that's concerning.
1: Um All right, so here's here's another quickie. 06 in medicine for uh, Francis M. Fesmiri, the University of Tennessee College of Medicine for his medical case report called Termination of intractable
0: hiccups with digital rectal massage. <laughs> It's like and one of those things I want to know about, but I don't want to <laughs> do the research. Or even if it's effective, I'm not sure that I want to use it anymore.
1: Right. There was there was, a, uh, there was also a follow-up by uh, Majid Oda, Harry Basan, Ari Oliven, and B'nai, at, at the uh, ben Zion Medical Center at Haifa, Israel, for their subsequent subsequent medical case report, also titled, Termination of Intractable Hiccups with Digital Rectal Massage.
0: Wow. I'm, I'm going to need to go read those reports. <laughs> I'm curious about the contents there. All right, I got, a, I got two quickies here from 08, and then maybe we'll dive into things more recent to sure. build up the excitement for tomorrow. Uh, so from 08, the one in biology was given to a, a big group of people for a comparison of jump performances of the dog flea and the <laughs> cat flea. What they found was that dog fleas jump higher than cat fleas, which to me is just like, duh, the dogs are a little taller a lot of the time. <laughs> Although I don't, I don't know what the actual ratio of or the fold change in, in jump height was. Sure. Uh, and then another one in 08 uh, in physics to Dorian Raymer and Douglas Smith for proving that heaps of string or hair will inevitably tangle. Uh, <laughs> the, the paper, it's, I'm sure it's something. Oh,
1: this, this guy won two two Ignovels, didn't? he? Yes, I, I believe yeah. so.
0: Yes. Uh, the paper was called "Spontaneous Knotting of an Agitated String," and they found that. Keeps a string or hair or whatever, it tangles inevitably d- with a direct relation to the length of, <laughs> of the thing. They identified 120 different types of knots in their trials, and they also found that the Y shape that headphones have at the little wire junction mm-hmm. increases the chance of knotting. Oh wow! Because it already has, it's like an easy crossover point huh. already. But I'm sure everyone has experienced this, right? You oh, take off your headphones, fold them up real nice, put yeah. them in your pocket pull them out less than a second later. Agitate and them, and then... You don't even have to... It's, I feel like <laughs> you don't even have to really agitate them. It's like yeah. they're just sitting in your pocket. You pull them out, and they're like, psych, thought you were going to be able to unravel me and use me real quick? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's why Apple got rid of the... Uh, oh, know, yeah, like, that's <laughs> the reason. Yeah, don't worry about getting your uh, headphones bundled up in a jumble now. Now you just worry about losing your headphones while you're walking at a normal pace. They'll fall right <laughs> out your ear.
1: Oh, man. All right, so... Uh, this one's from 2009, the Medicine Prize for uh, Donald L. Unger of Thousand Oaks, California, USA. He uh, investigated a possible cause, cause of arthritis. You know, you hear a lot that you know if you if you crack your knuckles, you're gonna get arthritis. So he uh, cracked the knuckles of his left hand and only his left hand for 60 years, and found that he didn't get arthritis in his left hand. That's dedication. That is dedication. 60 years. I don't ahead. know if I could
0: do that. You know, I mean, if you're not a knuckle cracker and you're listening to this. I suggest you don't try starting, because I find it highly addictive.
1: Oh, yeah. I crack yeah. pretty much
0: every joint I can find that will crack.
1: Right. W- but you're not going to get arthritis, though.
0: Thank so. goodness. Now <laughs> I know from that guy. All right. All I have left here is ones from 2015. Sure. If you want to hit up any before that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's see. The uh,
1: 2011 Chemistry Prize is for, for some Japanese people. who uh, they, they determined the ideal density of wasabi Ooh. in the air for for to make an alarm
0: like, a fire alarm for, you know, deaf people. A wasabi-based fire alarm? Yeah. Yeah, so, it's like well, it's, I mean,
1: like, it's a real it problem, It, like, right? goes
0: out into the air, and then yeah. the deaf people smell it, it and they, like, in their nose, and they like, up. oh, fire. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That is really interesting. I, like, how else are you going to do it, right? I mean, I yeah. guess my supposition would be to think that if deaf people don't hear the alarm, then mm-hmm. maybe the sprinklers will go off, and they'll feel the sprinklers. But I right. feel like by the time the sprinklers are going off, often it's like, a bit later on, yeah, right? yeah. It's, it's probably too late. Yeah, the wasabi sounds better. I'm interested in that too. I, I really <laughs> like wasabi, so
1: yeah, maybe you could use that as an alarm clock. You know, wake up every morning and good old wasabi wake up. <laughs> All right, moving up to 2010. We got, I got one for 2012 the anatomy prize for uh, friends the DeWall and Jennifer Picorni. Uh, they found out that you know they showed chimpanzees pictures of other chimpanzees' butts, nice. And then <laughs> figured out that chim- chimpanzees can identify other chimpanzees just
0: based on pictures of their butts. You know, I can only hope that one day we'll be able to say the same for humans. Right. Maybe we've inherited that feature, you know? It's yeah, it could be something shared in our common ancestor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Who knows? You know, right? Like, you know, you see, like, you know, a picture of Kim Kardashian's butt, and you're like, oh. Well, yeah, yeah.
0: That's, that's a giveaway. We're talking about famous butts now. <laughs> I assume that the chimp butts weren't famous butts, right? Yeah. They were just showing them regular old chimp butts.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe if we all walked around naked, at least like half naked, you know, See, we'd be able we were to. Talking you know, about a more and more ideal society, every every step we take here. <laughs> uh, there's there's the uh, 2013 Peace Prize for uh, Alexander Lukashenko. He's the president of Belarus. And uh, he made it illegal to applaud in public.
0: He made it illegal to applaud in public? <laughs> How is that even enforceable? So also, does it count as applaud if you're clapping on your own? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, I think so, yeah. Okay.
1: They also arrested <laughs> <laughs> a one-armed man for applauding in public. Uh, what was he applauding on? I I I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's harsh. So no, what had happened was leading up to this is you know this guy is a dictator and you know people were having protests. He banned protests. Yeah. He banned you know like chanting in public, and then people started going into public silently and just starting to clap as a protest.
0: Just to not have to hear him or anything. Yeah, just as a protest. Yeah. Yeah, you can't. Just to make noise. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so they arrest. Wow. A and then they arrest a one-armed man for do you, clapping. In do public. you know if if that's still the case in Belarus? Can you not clap? It in probably public? is. I don't want to find out. Wow. I, I don't want to go Interesting. there. Interesting. You know. I you know. Anyway. All right.
0: You got any more from before twenty fifteen? Uh well why don't you go ahead. So yeah I just have three quick ones from 2015 that I that I thought were interesting and hopefully we'll be looking tomorrow Thursday September 22nd to hear about more interesting yeah. discoveries at the, at this year's Ig Nobel. So last year the ones that I thought were really interesting in chemistry was given to uh, uh quite a few people for inventing a chemical recipe to partially unboil an egg. Oh yeah this is yeah. true Get go the, look it up. Back out, yeah. yeah yeah it's very interesting very interesting. Um you know the real solution is to not boil the egg if you don't <laughs> want to boil beforehand but. That's another matter entirely. Uh, There was one in physics last year to, again, quite a few people for testing and finding that nearly all mammals empty their bladders in approximately 21 seconds, plus plus or minus 13 seconds. That's for physics? Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's it's a physics question. Biophysics, but physics. Uh, And then the one that I, my favorite from last year was joint uh, in entomology and physiology. First to Justin Schmidt. Uh, for creating an index of pain felt while stung by various different insects so that people can have uh, uh something to point to and know how how much pain am I really in. And then, more importantly, to Michael Smith for very carefully having honeybees sting him on 25 different locations on the body in order for him to learn which are the most and least painful locations. Oh, delightful. And so, in case you're curious, if you're looking to get stung by bees, uh, you should try to get them to sting you on the skull, the middle toe tip, or the upper arm because those okay. are the least painful locations. Sure, sure. And you should really protect your nostril, your upper lip, and if you've got one, your penis shaft. Because oh. those are the most painful locations mm-hmm. to be stung by bees. Really just research that didn't need to be done, but I'm, <laughs> I'm glad it got done.
1: Well, I think it needs to be re- replicated on a female.
0: Oh, that's, that, that's interesting, true. yeah. There may be sex-specific differences. There could be, there could be. <laughs> like penis shaft. Yeah, that's true. That obviously is not going to be on a female. Well,
1: uh, yeah, well, we're we're gonna be looking forward to this year's Ig Nobel prizes. Uh, and if you want to follow them, you know, we already talked about getting tickets. You can go to improbableresearch.org, and uh, that's their organization that runs the Ig Nobel prizes. They're gonna have a live webcast for it, and nice. uh, they've been doing that since 1995. Oh wow! Yeah. So if you want to catch that, it's completely free, you can watch it online. You can actually watch older uh, Ig Nobel ceremonies. Uh, from previous years. They're all on YouTube. And so, you know, you could get ready, get excited, and, you know, we'll, we'll find out who they are. Good stuff, good stuff. Thanks for bringing this to our attention, Unjen. Yeah, thanks, Eta. And so, you know, if, if you guys have any more Ig Nobel awards that you guys really like, you guys can contact us.
0: Yeah, if you're interested in discussing this further or want us to touch on something in particular, or got any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, compliments, so on and so forth, you can get in touch with us at Science. Even though our show is the Grox Science Show, mm-hmm. which would imply that there would be two S's, the email address only has one S. Couldn't uh, afford the second S. Yeah. it was, Or it was already taken. Or yeah, we I just think. didn't think about it. I have no idea. Or we just don't like Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> so that's grokscience at gmail.com. You can also treat, tweet at us, at grokscience. Mm-hmm. Again, just the one S. Uh, and you can also tweet at me directly at I-T-T-A-I-E. Uh That's been the Grok Science Show. I'm Itai. I'm Anjan. And thanks for listening.